Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Manish Rath. I'm Manish Rath, and I'm grateful to all of you for participating. For those of you who are new to the OSHA 3030, this is a program we do every 30 days, and we try and cover a developmental area of OSHA law in about 30 minutes. Uh, that 30-minute part, sometimes we're a little more or less successful, uh, depending on the topic. Uh, as I said before, I'm Manish Rath here at Keller and Heckman, and uh, we've been doing this for about five years, and we've had uh, several of the members of the OSHA team here at Keller and Heckman participate in the program over the years. Today, I'm very fortunate because I'm joined by my friend and partner, Larry Halperin, who is one of the deans of OSHA law anywhere in the country. Larry and I have handled matters involving rulemaking before the federal agency, OSHA, as well as citation contests in federal uh, states as well as state plan states, pretty much all around the country. Some incredibly interesting issues, some really developmental areas of OSHA law, and uh, I've always had fun working on those projects with Larry Halpern. So, Larry, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Manish. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, as far as your comment about staying within 30 minutes, I'll try not to be the, the guilty party that runs over, but you know how I tend to talk. Well, some topics are more complicated and deserve it, uh, but I'm, I'm grateful that you're able to, to contribute your experience and insight. So, Larry, we have a great topic today. It's an important decision uh, that came out of uh, the circuit court, federal circuit court level, and I think those are always important, uh, first of all, because they're so uh, rare in the field of OSHA law. To begin with, I should say, as I mentioned before, we've done this for five years now every month, and so we have about 60 episodes, and they're all libraried on our website at khlaw.com slash OSHA3030. And in addition, uh, for about the past couple of years, we've reprised our programs as a podcast. So if you subscribe to the OSHA 3030 on your favorite podcast uh, media like iTunes, you will get these automatically downloaded to you either later the same day or the next day they pop up. And it's a great way to catch the OSHA 3030 if you've happened to have missed uh, an episode. And it's also a great way to share the OSHA 3030 with your colleagues. We've been doing this complimentary uh, for our clients and friends of the firm for the entirety of the history of the OSHA 3030. And the only thing we ask is that when you receive the email invitation to register for the next program, that you forward that on to your in-house counsel or safety and health professional within your organization or at other organizations where you happen to have colleagues. Uh, so with that said, as I mentioned, we have a great topic uh, that is a, a case that hit the circuit court level. Uh, let's talk about, give you an overview of what we're going to talk about first. First, we'll get into an overview of the facts of that case, and then we will uh, describe the citations that OSHA issued in that case. Uh, the employer contested this, those citations and brought them to a full hearing before the administrative law judge. We'll talk about the employer's arguments, OSHA's arguments, uh, before the ALJ. Uh, then it was brought on appeal to the 11th Circuit, and we'll discuss the 11th Circuit decision, ultimately turning on the question of uh, when a supervisor's knowledge can be imputed and should be imputed to the employer for the purpose of uh, assessing liability upon the employer. So finally, we'll wrap up, as we always do, with a brief discussion of practical takeaway items uh, on what employers should do in light of this development. With that said, let's go ahead and get into the facts of this case. This is a case involving Samson Construction. 
So Samson Construction is a f- construction firm that uh, was handling a project in uh, Port Ritchie in Florida, which is probably 30 to 60 minutes north of Tampa, St. Pete, on the west coast of Florida. And Samson Construction was engaged to apply the exterior to a Verizon store in Port Ritchie. Uh, they, they were applying stucco. And they engaged two workers to assemble scaffolding so that the work could commence on applying stucco to the exterior. And the, the two workers who were assembling the, stu- the uh, scaffolding were a father and son team, Floyd Wood and his son, John Wood. And they were both considered leads on the crew. And Floyd Wood, in fact, was very senior. He had been doing this for uh, maybe as long as uh, 50 or 60 years and claims that he had assembled 1,500 or more scaffolds in his time and was well aware of OSHA requirements. And so they assembled a 13-foot scaffold to the outside of the building to be constructed for for a Verizon store. And ultimately, the site was subjected to an OSHA inspection. Manish, let me just add, we always advocate complying with OSHA requirements, but particularly if you're going to have a site that's out on the public road where an OSHA inspector can come by and see it, then as a matter of risk management, you've got to pay more attention. And this was one of those cases where OSHA inspectors were driving by, looked out, and they always look at scaffolds, and there was one that they determined visibly was clearly noncompliant. Yeah, that's a great point. The the uh, problem with construction, and we, you and I, do a lot of work in construction, is that we we find that the unique one of the unique problems for construction is that there's this concept called the uh, plain view doctrine, and if OSHA sees uh, if OSHA sees any kind of potential violation in plain view, in that particular case, it doesn't need a warrant. It doesn't need all the other features of probable cause. It may enter and conduct an, ex- an inspection on the basis of a putative violation that it saw in plain view, like from a street or from a neighboring right. building, so etc. So no reasonable expectation of privacy on a public street and probably even with a telephoto lens if the inspector happens to pull one out. That's the current state of technology and that's the current state of the law. Right. And so when you get into uh, a construction site, and in this particular case, that's what, what happened. The Kosho observed what he believed to be noncompliant scaffolding or use of scaffolding. Uh, the Kosho conducted an inspection as a consequence of that, and he brought along his area director as well. Uh, they conducted an inspection and interviewed several employees, including uh, Floyd Wood and John Wood, the two leads involved in the scaffolding assembly who were also, by the way, accessing the scaffolding to perform work. Um, Some of the things that they discovered or learned during the inspection uh, involved uh, statements made by employees during those interviews. They discovered that Samson, uh, their safety program, such as it was, consisted only of weekly safety meetings uh, held by the safety director. They didn't have a written safety program. And I think that's probably common for a lot of very small 
uh, firms and small firms in construction. And, and it's something to consider as we go through this case. Uh, the, the interviews suggested that the safety meetings that they did have with the safety director uh, and the staff didn't typically cover scaffold safety. Uh, the supervisor, Floyd Wood, uh, admitted that he knew when he had constructed the scaffold that he knew he was supposed to uh, create a guardrail around the top flight and that it shouldn't be accessed without a ladder, uh, he, that he was familiar with OSHA requirements involving scaffolding. The scaffold on one level was unplanked yet at the point where employees had started entering the scaffolding to perform work. And he knew that uh, he was aware of OSHA regulations and he knew that there were some aspects of his scaffold that weren't fully compliant. And further admitted that the reason he knew those facts and was uh, permitting employees to to commence work was that the project was uh, scheduled in s such a way that he was in a hurry to get the job done. So in addition to that, well, it didn't even come up in this case. The construction standards require a safety and health program for the site, which they apparently didn't have. OSHA didn't mention that. And there's a requirement to train employees in theory on every hazard to which they'd be exposed. So OSHA could have done a lot more with this case had they chosen to. I don't have a, you know, a rule of thumb, but it seems to me when you get over 10 employees and maybe even less than that, you need a written program where you're going to have an uphill battle ever established. Just got an effective safety program. And they had 20 employees. And one of the arguments that you hear from employers sometimes with respect to OSHA requirements is that you know, large employers, and this is not true, uh, have less sort of a personal contact with the employees, but when you have a small family business, they take better care of each other. So here's a father, a son, and a nephew, and all three of them are clearly not complying with the, the OSHA requirements for scaffolds. So the nephew is an interesting uh, feature of this uh, fact pattern. His name is Tyler Chico, and he, he had entered onto the scaffolding, and there's some conflicting testimony as to what levels of the scaffolding he entered. If he had not entered the top level, then the guard railing violation was not at issue for him, but the unplanked uh, upper level as well as the use of a ladder would have been uh, applicable. And, and that, that'll become relevant as we discover what Samson Construction's defenses were. So, so these are the facts gleaned from the inspection. OSHA issued three citations that are relevant here. One, and they're all, uh, they're all serious or willful violations. One of them was an allegation that Samson Construction uh, had failed to ensure that the scaffolding, the decking, was fully planked. Another was that the top and mid guardrails were missing. And the third uh, allegation or citation item was that the supervisor had, uh, uh, well, that they were accessing the, the upper levels without a ladder. Uh, as Which means they would have actually been carrying stucco materials and this mud uh, up to the upper level by climbing on this scaffold as it was with monkey bars when you were a kid and didn't have to worry about carrying 40-pound buckets of mud with you or whatever the, the poundage would be. Yeah, that's a good point, Larry. That's a great point. So, so the scaffolding provided a ladder-like uh, infrastructure that they were using to just climb up. Uh, maybe if they were very capable in, and it was less than five feet, that may not have been as big a problem, but this was a 13-foot scaffold. And as you know, they were carrying uh, work materials and tools up with them. Uh, 
this was exacerbated and fueled a uh, elevation to a willful classification because the supervisor, uh, Floyd, uh, had alleged that he had 58 years of experience, had built 1,500 scaffolds, and was aware of the OSHA regulations, and that his failure to guardrail, his failure to uh, deck or plank the scaffolding, or no use of a ladder, were non-conforming with the OSHA sta- scaffolding standard. And so... so I should also add that OSHA's theory is, in addition to all this, that you're supposed to have three points of contact with a ladder which would have been impossible under the circumstances. When you're carrying materials. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Uh, so so OSHA, OSHA issued those uh, alleged uh, violations on those three bases, and, and Samson Construction contested it. In fact, they took this all the way through a full hearing, which is, I think, on the overall scale of all citations issued, a full evidentiary hearing is relatively Rare, I'd say it's less, far less common, and a very small percentage of all citations issued. And so I find that fact alone to be interesting. Uh, and I've, I've admitted that in the past, that on the basis of the evidence gathered in the inspection, I think it's interesting that Samson Construction decided to take this through a full evidentiary hearing. The I evidentiary hearing. What it came down to was if OSHA had been willing to drop the willfuls, they would have probably left the case alone and, and accepted them. But we can only speculate. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, the the counsel for Samson was not, to my understanding, an OSHA attorney. Was a sort of a general practitioner, and that uh, outcome of reducing this from a willful to a serious may or may not have entered into the discussions between Samson and counsel, or Samson and OSHA through counsel. Uh, we we don't get uh, insight into that part of the process before the evidentiary hearing. But Larry, I think you're right, at least to this extent. In all of the citation contests that you and I, or you or I, have handled, the opportunity to engage in settlement discussions is sort of pervades the whole process, uh, and really describes the bulk of the outcomes of citation contests. And so it is. Uh, likely that that was one of the items discussed, one of the features of settlement discussed by either party, we don't know, is maybe a re- potential reduction from willful to serious. Uh, and, and I think it may have made a difference, particularly as they are a construction contractor. And future work is, a, is certainly mm-hmm. in part dependent on, on their, their history. So with that said... This went through a full evidentiary hearing, and some of the testimony that came out from the workers, including uh, uh, Floyd and John, uh, his his son, was that they knew about the standard. They were in a hurry to get this done. They were willing to overlook these uh, these features of the standard. Uh, that other employees were carrying material up, using the uh, scaffolding itself rather than the ladder. That employees were up on unguardrailed uh, levels of the scaffolding and bringing mud for stucco application up there and depositing it. Others were, were doing work. And so let, let me review. So, so basically the, the citations based on the, the usual elements, as the standard applies, they conceded that. Was there noncompliance with the standard? They conceded that. Was there exposure to the hazard and likelihood of serious physical harm? The 13-foot fall, yes, they, they conceded all that. So the real issue just simply turned on whether there was knowledge and then when there was heightened knowledge that would justify the, the willful citation, and that was the focus of this case. Well, that's an interesting point, Larry, and I think you're right to outline the elements that OSHA has to prove. And, in fact, Samson 
construction conceded or stipulated the first three elements. The first three elements were in place, that there was a nonconformance with the standard. They stipulated. They, cons- they stipulated that there was uh, exposure by the employees because they were on those uh, levels of the scaffold or using uh, the scaffold instead of a ladder. The only thing that they contested was the fourth element, which was Sampson said to the administrative law judge, look, we, the institution of Sampson Construction, did not know about these violations. It is true that some of our employees, Floyd Wood, John Wood, Tyler Chico, may have known about a nonconformance with the standard, but their knowledge isn't to the same as Samson's knowledge. If Samson knew of these conditions, we may have had an opportunity to fix it. And so without that, without OSHA having proven that Samson had, the institution had knowledge, I don't, we don't think OSHA has made its case. So this is why we're here today, Larry. Right. This is the central issue of the case. Mm-hmm. Right. And OSHA said, well, we think that we can establish knowledge because Floyd Wood was a supervisor. Samson Construction responds, well, Judge, he may have been a supervisor, but the case law suggests that when the supervisor, through his own malfeasance, engages in a violation, that is not attributable as knowledge of the violation. That's not imputed as knowledge by the employer because the supervisor, typically the supervisor's knowledge is the same as the employer's knowledge unless it's the supervisor's own malfeasance that he has knowledge of. OSHA responds to that by saying, well, that would be the case, but there's an exception to that exception. And that's when the supervisor's own malfeasance subjects an subordinate employee's uh, work or the subordinate employee to uh, a hazard. And here you had John Wood and Tyler Chico. Well, Samson Construction responds that John Wood was not a non-supervisor. He is also a supervisor because he's a lead man. So that just leaves Tyler Chico. Tyler Chico is clearly a subordinate employee by everyone's measuring of the term subordinate. So the court, the judge, administrative law judge, now has to evaluate the case on whether or not Floyd Wood, as a supervisor, his own malfeasance in non-compliance with the OSHA standard would have exposed Tyler Chico to a hazard. And if so, then Floyd Wood's knowledge as a supervisor of a violative condition would be imputed to Samson Construction. Backed up into a corner, Samson says, well, there, there may be some exposure by Tyler Chico on the question of the ladder and maybe on the undecked plan, uh, planking, but, uh, but not as to the guardrails because Tyler Chico didn't enter the top level of the scaffold where the guardrail might have been missing. Uh, the testimony, in fact, conflicts on that point because there is testimony that Tyler was on the top level. Other employees had reported that they'd worked with him on the top level and that they themselves had worked on the top level when there was no guardrail. So even as to that last defense, Samson Construction was faced with conflicting testimony. Uh, The ALJ sided with OSHA and said, look, we think that there's exposure by a supervisor, uh, a supervisor's noncompliance that the supervisor knew of, and the exposure involved a subordinate employee. Thus, the supervisor's knowledge of the condition does imp- uh, become imputed to Samson Construction as knowledge. That is the, the holding from the administrative law judge. Well, Samson Construction 
appealed this to the 11th Circuit and pointed out all these same exact concerns to the 11th Circuit and said, we think that the administrative law judge misunderstood because there was no exposure on the scaffolding uh, guardrail problem or alleged problem where regards any subordinate employee. And we don't think that the ALJ appreciated that. We also think the ALJ didn't appreciate that John Wood is a lead and thus not a subordinate. And so they essentially rehashed their arguments before the ALJ. They also took a uh, uh, stab at defending against a willful by saying that when you look at willful violations, we think that that applies to a reckless disregard of the uh, standard. And the best that we think that there's evidence of here is that although the employer was unaware except for through the supervisor, there was uh, uh, a history by Samson Construction of never having had any prior OSHA citations. And immediately after the citation was issued, they did develop a, a, um, sa- a written safety plan. And so we think that this isn't a good case for a willful. Th- Larry, uh, I appreciate your uh, refraining from... Uh, making light of the arguments, but I, I also appreciate the sentiment. I don't think these were very strong arguments. Is that a safe statement? I didn't see that they were really persuasive at all. No, you, you, they, they made the assertion that they were a safety-conscious company, and in the sense that they didn't want anybody to get hurt, that's true. But a 20-person a company with no written safety program, to me, is not a safety-conscious company in this day and age. That's a start. Um, Although I think it does describe a lot of companies. I don't know. I, that's not a recommendation that I would ever make to, right. to, to go without one. I don't see how it's really credible at this point in time. Right. There's too much training that's involved and too much knowledge is required and too much organization tracking of things. Um, actually, what, with respect to that, there were, there were two bases for the imputing the knowledge, the actual knowledge, if you want to call it, of the uh, supervisor, and then the constructive knowledge from the lack of an effective program, the company didn't actually appeal the finding that there was imputed knowledge based, constructive knowledge based on the lack of a safety program. And therefore, that wasn't an issue before the Court of Appeals. With respect to the supervisor's knowledge, the court has basically stated that the heightened awareness of the supervisor is imputed to the employer. Therefore, if you have supervisor with 58 years of experience putting up 1,500 scaffolds who recognizes that he's 13 feet above the ground and doesn't put mid-rails up and doesn't fully plank the, the scaffold, doesn't put a ladder up, that, and then says he's in a hurry and realizes he should have done it, that's going to be enough to be reckless disregard or plain indifference, whichever standard you'd like to use. Yeah, and that's how the 11th Circuit ruled on that one. I think that the testimony that he knew about all these things but was in a hurry to get the job done was damning on the question of willful versus just a mere serious. I agree with you, Larry. Uh, you, you raised a really interesting point that I do think we need to pay some attention to. At the ALJ level, the ALJ noted that there's two ways to establish, for OSHA to establish knowledge by the employer. One is this idea that the supervisor's knowledge of an alleged violation can be imputed to the employer. And then there's an exception and an exception to the exception that the supervisor's own malfeasance may create an exception unless that malfeasance 
exposes a subordinate employee to an alleged exposure to a hazard. And then the second way OSHA can establish that the company had knowledge was this constructive knowledge theory that if the employer did not even so much as have a written safety plan and didn't take all the steps necessary that that are pursuant to that plan, like uh, training, uh, monitoring, etc., then they really could arguably have discovered the violation had they had that plan. And uh, because they really appear to have taken very little effort in the absence of a written safety uh, plan, they they can be constructively considered to have had knowledge of the of the alleged violation. This is sort of uh, uh, through reasonable efforts, could they have known of the uh, alleged hazard and that the absence of a written control plan seems to suggest that they didn't take those reasonable steps. Flipping it to the other side, if they thought they really had a basis for defending it, they would have used a misconduct defense and attempted to present all the elements of that, which they weren't able to do. Yeah, I think that's right. So I'm really glad you pointed that out. So the 11th Circuit agreed with the ALJ on everything, including the willful and the employer knowledge uh, emanating from the the supervisor's knowledge. So I think that brings us around to what what we think in light of this case, what we think employers should do. Uh, I think it's an important question, to, to be sure. I think that the written safety program is... Uh, a central part of the LJ's decision. And I think it's the step that employers should re-commit uh, themselves to uh, at the beginning of, of this exercise. If you have one, it's always a good idea to reevaluate it and update it from time to time based on the changes in your practices, in your tasks, any changes in your use of subcontractors. And it's also important to uh, revise it from time to time, uh, not only as you engage in new activities, but uh, because the standards change from time to time as well, or interpretations. Uh, but there are employers, as I said before, that haven't developed one, and I think that's that's certainly got to be a high-priority project, particularly because Samson Construction, the case, informs us that if you don't have a written program, then virtually anything you didn't know about could be imputed to you as something you, you should have known about in terms of alleged violations or alleged hazards. So a, a lack of a written program, having some sort of meetings once a week rather than even a brief daily meeting, not even mentioning ball protection from scaffolds apparently at all in any of these meetings, uh, it's not really a credible basis uh, as far as I can recall. The person who was the actual supervisor, there were two leads, one designated as the prime lead and then a supervisor, in effect. Then there was also a supervisor on the site who apparently wasn't competent in the area of scaffolds at all. Yeah. So it, it wasn't a good arrangement considering the job this company was doing. Right. Con- Samson Construction also talked about these weekly safety meetings, and I work with several construction firms, and they sophisticated programs, by the way, and they have uh, daily safety meetings, and they take a checklist format of, you know, real quick, but still, they take uh, minutes on the safety issues that they talked about at that meeting. And uh, they have daily records on safety issues based on their day-to-day walk-through inspections. And sometimes they're, they have inspect, uh, safety and health professionals walking through the job site three, four times a day. Uh, so yeah, It would be an obligation to inspect a scaffold at the beginning of a shift in any event, and unfortunately, given the 
environment we're in and the potential for somebody to come along with some mischief in mind on a publicly available scaffold, just common sense would suggest some sort of a check, even if it wasn't required by law. But it is, and it's expressly written in the ladder standard to check it before every shift. And I know they didn't use a ladder, but by the same token, they were using the scaffold as a ladder. And both should be inspected uh, daily at the beginning of every shift. They, yeah. they had a lot of problems. That's a great point, Larry. I, I, I'm glad you brought that up. And, you know, that brings us around to the monitoring and the self-audits. The self-audit is a little bit more involved. Uh, and I think that it could be done from time to time by a conscientious uh, organization. The key there, I think the two key points, if I were to encourage an organization to consider self-audits, would be that, that you really got to fulfill the action items that come out of that audit and fulfill them quickly, or else the fact that you discovered it and didn't take action could be evidence that transfers a heightened level of knowledge to the employer, uh, the kind of which could move a alleged violation from serious to willful. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the other is that these audits themselves, although the action items and the follow-up are very difficult to keep under a attorney-client privilege, it may be that the audit itself and the audit report that emanates from that could be done at the instructions of your OSHA counsel mm-hmm. so that you can protect at least as much of the process as possible under attorney-client privilege. And that's something that uh, our clients certainly do uh, quite often is to use counsel to direct the audit. Mm-hmm. Uh, the The other thing I'd say is once you've developed a written program, I think you've got to train empl- uh, employees and supervisors on a host of issues, not just on the existence of the plan, but on the kinds of things you're describing, like the mm-hmm. duty to inspect, the record-keeping for inspections, the record-keeping, uh, the, the identity of the competent persons, uh, the record-keeping of safety and health issues or injuries and illnesses. Uh, There's one thing I'd like to add to, and, and this is speculative, I, and it's not because I want to give OSHA credit necessarily. This was a small business with 10, 20 employees. We've already talked about probably another half a dozen citations that OSHA could have issued. So I would say to the larger construction companies, don't view this as the way things would come out if you were found in a similar situation. I would expect a much more comprehensive inspection and a much more aggressive enforcement action than this one. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that's right, Larry. And I also would add one more thing, which is the last bullet, is that Samsung Construction did not engage OSHA counsel to, to support it or represent it, and but a generalist at both the ALJ level and the, the uh, 11th Circuit appellate level. But I, I think that OSHA counsel would have sized up your point very early on. And I, I think some of the resources that are sometimes uh, allocated by an employer into these defenses, these defenses didn't seem to me to be particularly compelling. I think that those resources, maybe an employer without OSHA counsel who could have sized that up earlier may have uh, redirected those resources towards the development of a safety and health program or a more effective safety program. Uh, we are all here to the OSHA Defense Council, the employer side council, uh, the safety and health professionals at the organizations are presumably all here to help make sure that at the end of every shift, all of our workers go home unharmed, uh, healthy, and uh, alive. And all sharing that common goal, I think that sometimes these resources for defenses that, in this, in this case, I just didn't see it, uh, maybe better allocated resources towards actual improvements in safety and health. I think that, to me, struck me as one of the, the uh, maybe the most pronounced uh, lessons I took away from the Samson construction case. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and I'm sorry to have to uh, confess that because you you really do want to believe that uh, all employers are entitled to robust defense. But I didn't see this defense as being particularly robust, and I think that bears noting to the members of the OSHA 3030 community. So with that said, I think that's the last word. Larry? It sounds like a good point to cut it off. Wow, I got the last word then. And uh, and if there's anything more that develops in the field of OSHA law between now and the next OSHA 3030, you can catch it several places. Uh, our LinkedIn web pages, Larry Halpern has a LinkedIn page. I know my colleagues David Sarvati, Javane Nukumaram, who, by the way, instrumental in preparing and bringing this program to air. Uh, and I all each have uh, LinkedIn pages. So please link in with us so you, we can keep uh, stay connected with each other. And the Conor Heckman Workplace Safety and Health page is its own LinkedIn page. Uh, as I mentioned before, this OSHA 3030, as with many of the prior ones, are available as a podcast. So subscribe through your favorite podcast program. Our next OSHA 3030 will be scheduled for 1 p.m. on Wednesday, March 21. And you can find more information about that program and all of our past programs at khlaw.com slash OSHA3030. Uh, finally, our sister programs are up and running and have a terrific following for those of you in the pesticides or chemical industries. Uh, the FIFRA 3030 will be scheduled for Wednesday, April 4th at 1 p.m. And the TOSCA 3030 is scheduled for a week before our next program, that is March 14th, Wednesday at 1 p.m. And then ours, again, is March 21 at 1 p.m. So I hope that you pass on the good word when you get these invitations about all of these programs. And on behalf of Keller and Heckman, Larry Halpern, and myself, thank you all for participating in this OSHA 3030. And until the next one, stay safe.